Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. We're going to take a look at the uh, energy business, Vani. Uh, you know, we talked to so many portfolio managers, Vani, about, you know, is it time to get into uh, energy stocks, and I haven't found too many that are brave enough to do so, but maybe in the private equity business, they view it a little bit differently. Dan Eberhart, CEO of Canary LLC, based in Denver, Colorado. Dan, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, a lot of folks here, particularly in the public equity markets and obviously in the credit markets, are really down on energy, particularly uh, the oil field services guys uh, that are really feeling the brunt of lower oil prices. What's your view? Well, I think it really depends on your time frame. If, if you're a short-term investor and looking to be in for weeks, I think you, you know, you've got to be very careful that the, the bloodbath continues. And particularly with a lot of the smaller EMPs and with the oil field service companies, I think you've got to be on bankruptcy watch and, and really just invest in, if you're investing in the sector, invest in things that have liquidity first and foremost, uh, and then, and then look at how good their operating business is. But if you're investing for the long term, I think that Look, this this downturn is the it, it, we're seeing the seeds planted for the you know for an eventual boom and you know it's it's all about supply and demand and as you know demand contracted thirty percent everybody shut the doors everybody stopped uh, kind of constructing air quotes for new oil but what we're really looking for here going forward is the supply and demand picture is going to completely change so you know production has fallen from thirteen million barrels a day to nine point seven kind of rebounded to about eleven. But as, uh, you know, oil and gas demand comes back to 95, 98 percent of where it was, we're going to have a shortage of oil, a shortage of natural gas. And you're really going to see an inflection point, I think, in Q4, Q1 sometime when uh, these shale wells, which traditionally are, you know, 12 month bets, uh, really run dry. And the industry is going to need to drill for more oil. And you're going to see the service sector and the smaller EMPs really, you know, take take up and take off and and shoot up on on a valuation uh, run. How far can they go, though? Because there's a limit to what people will be able to spend on energy in this environment at any rate, Dan, right? I, I think it is, but I also think a, a large amount of the demand is fixed. And I think that we've overcut supply. Look, typically in a, in a recession, we see demand falls of, of 1% to 3% maximum. Mm-hmm. To see the demand fall of 30% kind of freaked everyone out. And the sector is going to suffer from chronic underinvestment, and that's really going to lead to, you know, demand's going to rise one or two percent, and the supply is going to fall at the same time. And that that in that way is going to become a lot of pricing power for the local service companies in particular, and for some of the smaller EMPs to make quite a bit of money. Um, Again, this is this is yeah. if you've got a time frame of you know nine months, eighteen months. If you've got a time frame of three weeks, I think you need to bet on liquidity. So what are you doing right now from a private equity perspective here? Because I guess from your perspective, valuations are very attractive right here. Is it simply a case if you've got capital and you're smart with your capital, you can make some, some big bets here? Is that where, how you guys are approaching it? Yeah, we're, we're, we're nibbling, but I, I think there's a huge valuation gulf, and people remember what their businesses were in, you know, valued at in February, and people are wanting close to that. I think the new reality is quite different. And again, it, it really depends on your time. Time frame, but the the short term profits are basically nil, particularly in the oil field service sector. So, I think you you've really got to have a long time horizon to put money on the space now. What you're really seeing is kind of this Jamie Dimon, um, 
you know, fortress balance sheet type mentality where you're seeing Marathon sell its gas stations to 7-Eleven to buy liquidity. And um, you're seeing Noble run into the arms of Chevron. You've seen about 18, I think, public EMP companies declare bankruptcy. The sector has moved from about 8% of the S&P 500 to 2.5%. So really you're seeing a, a flight to quality and a flight to the, the stronger getting stronger and the weaker getting weaker. And that's, that's really the, the tail of the tape in oil and gas right now. Where would that have you betting, whether it be by state, by company, by oil patch? So, you know, the, the costs are higher in the Bakken and lower in the Permian if you're trying to bet on a geography. But I think you're going to see those with bigger balance sheets. So Exxon, Chevron, people like this get stronger. You're going to see the medium-sized people get bought out. And then you're going to see the people with over-leveraged balance sheets like Apache, you know, fall by the wayside or like, you know, Whiting and um, Chesapeake have already filed bankruptcy. And then I think I would I would really be short the oilfield service sector, particularly names like Superior and um, uh, neighbors that have uh, impaired balance sheets. You're, they're, they're really under a lot of stress right now. How about the concern, Dan, that uh, maybe 2019 was peak oil? Um, is that a concern that you think that's valid? Uh, I, I do think it's a concern that's valid, although, you know, hi- history is littered with people trying to call peak oil. Um, I, I think we will be back to kind of this never-ending worldwide economic growth in the, you know, 1%, 2 3% range. I think we're going to get back to a path of that when this pandemic gets out. And I think that, you know, renewables get uh, a, a way bigger market share in the press than what they're actually capable of in kind of the three, five, six-year range. In terms of produce or in terms of demand destruction for oil and gas, and again, you know, natural gas is one of the three main feedstocks for power plants. So, I think the industry's got a long way to go, and I think we're going to keep being consumers. And you know, as people hit in the emerging markets, as people hit ten thousand dollars in GDP per capita, they want to buy a car. That's just the way it is. And I think that those cars are going to be internal combustion engines for quite a long time to come. So, I think demand is going to be relatively inelastic with inside a narrow band. And that augurs well for oil and gas. Where, where I really would be short is offshore. I think those are higher costs and longer-term projects. And you're going to see onshore, particularly U.S. shale, um, receive more of the capital because it's short-cycle capital that can be turned on and off depending on the commodity price. Can I just say, Dan, that the, the name of your private equity company, Canary, does send shivers down the spine. It does seem like um, <laughs> it's a little bit of a, a portentous name. Can I very briefly ask you what percentage of portfolio companies for private equity in this space will go to zero? Um, I think you're going to see an awful lot of private equity companies take a bloodbath, particularly ones that have shorter time horizons. So those with 18, 24-month time horizons are going to be really stressed to, to get out and, and be made whole or, yeah. or make some money. Well, on, on their portfolio. Well, we will follow the story. No doubt it will unfold over the next few months. We were already talking earlier about uh, nearly 100,000 job losses in this space already, and, and they're permanent, pretty much, job losses. Dan Aberhart, CEO of Canary, based in Denver, private equity investor, and uh, Canary, of course, oilfield services firm. Thank you so much for joining us. It is 10.48 on Wall Street time for Bloomberg Opinion. We are pleased to be welcomed uh, by Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and Director of Intelligence at Quill Intelligence, former advisor at the Dallas Federal Reserve and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Danielle, thanks so much for joining us here. You have a fascinating column out on the travel business. And 
I guess no industry has been hit harder than the broad travel business by this pandemic, but your thoughts are, this thing's not going to come back very quickly. What are your key points there? Well, I think uh, it has to do with two things, demographics and businesses right-sizing their cost structures. Um, If you think about older Americans, 55 plus, we accounted for 80% of luxury travel last year. Uh, That's been a growing trend. And separately, the business traveler accounted for here in North America 30% of the spend, if you will, uh, even though they were, uh, they were only 20% of the actual travelers. So your business travel, traveler always was the one in business class in, in, uh, on the airlines, and they occupied nicer hotels for longer periods of time because it was, of course, on, on the company's dime. A lot, of, a lot of CEOs I speak with today, a lot of people running large staffs are saying, that they don't know when their travel and expense budgets are going to return because they've learned how to meet and convene differently. Just from, from a personal standpoint, I, I've had speaking engagements at a dozen uh, conferences canceled since this whole thing started, and the trend does not seem to be dissipating because the, the virus, of course, continues to ping-pong all over the country and the world. Danielle, Yes, everyone's got a little bit more used to Zoom and so on. But at some point, you know, assuming that there is a vaccine or some kind of treatment for this, won't people want to congregate again and won't people want to go on business trips? Of course. Of of course, this is going to come back to a certain extent. One of the, the, the things, one of the points that I tried to make in the column was that over the past decade or so, unfortunately, 50% 50% of the, com- the commercial mortgage-backed securities that are tied to lodging loans, hotel loans, are in the full-service sector. My concern is that there is so much oversupply and so much overcapacity that that is why we're seeing lodging default rates for those loans higher even than what we're seeing in the retail sector. It's because of the, of the concentration of luxury that I'm not sure can be fulfilled for some time to come. Of course, the desire and the wherewithal is, is there, and I've, I just came back from a week-long trip myself. The, the, the highways are full of people. It's just a matter of whether or not the skies are going to recover quickly. Well, Danielle, this also has, when we think about the, you know, the, the global leisure business, this is a big uh, employment sector as well as we think about the consumer economy here. How do you factor that into kind of your calculations for job growth or unemployment and, as we kind of try to dig out on the other side of this? Well, and I think that's one of the least understood things that I learned the most researching this column is that 330 million people worldwide were employed by travel and tourism at the end of 2019. One in 10 jobs, again, all around the globe. And in the last five years, the the sector was responsible for one in five jobs created. So the the more protracted uh, the, the wait is in terms of getting to a vaccine where there's full confidence for everybody to travel the world, the longer the permanent damage is that we're going to be seeing in that travel tourism sector. There's a good chart in the Bloomberg uh, in the Bloomberg column that's up on the terminal that kind of exemplifies that permanent employment in travel and tourism here in the United States is getting hit harder than it is in other sectors. Danielle, is there anything that can be done to mitigate? I mean, there was talk of bailouts and so on and particular sectors getting more help than others. I guess that's sort of gone by the wayside now with PPP and so on. It has, and you know, if, if the Federal Reserve was to be prompted to step in, they would they were going into similar challenges as what they had when they were asked to step in, specifically for the energy industry. 
and that's that Dodd-Frank uh, precludes their ability to address individual industries. And as we know from major announcements, whether it be American Airlines or United, the layoffs are very much in place come September the 30th. Uh, and as far as hotels go, just this morning on the wires, we've got Marriott that had a big miss to its earnings, its top and bottom line. So, I, again, I'm not sure how much can be addressed. Some of these are massive, massive companies that, that employ thousands upon thousands of people. I'm not sure what, the, what, what fiscal stimulus or monetary stimulus can do at this juncture. So, Danielle, as you think about just the broader economy, how important is it to get some fiscal stimulus out of Washington at this point? It seems to be uh, not as clear-cut as, as the last round. Well, you know, it's interesting you ask. It, it certainly isn't. Let's say that there's $400 and it arrives yesterday. It seems that there's obviously going to be very, you know, red tape delays, et cetera. Uh, you would still see, according to Moody's Analytics recent study, you would still see an increase of 660000 in permanently employed. You would still see GDP t- uh, take a hit of 0.83 just from having that 600 a week go to 400 a week. Again, because we do have this growth in permanent employment in Friday's jobs report we saw that, that out of work, want people who want to be working but, but have been out of work for 15 weeks or more grew from 18.7% in June to 48.8% in July. So it looks like there's more sclerosis out there in the labor force and that stimulus dollars need to get out there as soon as possible. Yeah, I mean, there's another fascinating story on the Bloomberg today about the Mall of America and Bourbon Street and all of these places that are just, you know, at levels of maybe 15% of what they were a year ago. However, golf courses are humming again, and so are the nation's non-profit food banks. So there's really a huge gap in this economy right now, more than we've ever seen possibly before, Danielle, right? It is the inequality divide. You just gave me goosebumps, Bonnie. Mm. The inequality divide that has been laid bare by this crisis is just enormous. I mean, obviously the wealth are going where the wealthy can go. They can easily socially distance on a golf course, and that's an easy enough thing to do. Um, And you hear about certain kinds of super luxury travel that are doing well. But if you think about a restaurant's business model, restaurants tend to have maybe a week to two weeks of cash flow on hand. And their business models are in in the French Quarter, for example, that was a great story that that was on the Bloomberg. uh, Their their business models are predicated on having a line around the door, not having 15 or 20 percent capacity. They could only hold on for so long, which is why I think we're seeing a lot of the survey data from Yelp and other providers show that they're expecting permanent closures in the restaurant industry, which is another huge employer. These are all such difficult, difficult things to read and hear about. All right, Danielle, it's always wonderful to speak with you. That is Danielle DiMartino Booth, of course, of Quill Intelligence, former Dallas Fed advisor. As Dave was just reporting about Eastman Kodak, I pulled up the 12-month trailing chart for this stock, and it's you know, over the past 12 months, it's traded between 2 3 maybe $4. And then just in the past a couple of weeks, it shot up to about $34 per share. Uh, it's now down to $10.38 per share. Just extraordinary volatility in the last couple of weeks. Let's get a sense of what is going on there. We can do that with Eric Newcomer, Bloomberg Tech Politics uh, reporter. So, Eric, just set the stage for us. What caused the surge in this stock and then following up on that, what caused its big plunge here? You know, the the Trump administration sort of came out of nowhere and said, we're going to give Kodak a $765 million loan to transition this sort of camera printer company into a pharmaceutical manufacturing company. And so, you know, we had 
Trump. We had uh, Governor Cuomo in New York. We had Peter Navarro all coming out and saying, okay, this is going to be a big thing. And so then the stock takes off, you know, with the idea, oh, maybe there's this future for Kodak. We see a ton of excitement from the Wall Street bets type crowd. You know, it was just sort of a hot stock. And then all of a sudden there were questions about, you know, share purchases from insiders. And then we got uh, investigations out of Congress and the SEC. And now we have the agency that granted the loan saying, actually, we're going to put everything on hold until we get to the bottom, you know, everyone gets to the bottom of what went on here. So then the thing that pumped the stock up is now sort of not not looking to happen. So are there any actual workers at Kodak, you know, even if they're working remotely or from home at the moment? And if so, what are they doing? I mean, Kodak has said that one to three percent of what they do, their revenue right now comes from this pharmaceutical manufacturing. I mean, that that's from them. And I, I, it's hard to say, you know, with coronavirus, especially sort of where that is. So, you know, I, I, I think it's a good question. Sort of there's we don't know a lot about sort of their capacity to produce these materials and sort of where they are today. But but that's sort of the stat we have in terms of you know, the share of revenue. Uh, so what do we know, Eric, like, Eric, how did this thing all come about? It was a shock to everybody. Here you got a company, I mean, if you're going to give a loan to a company to, you know, create a vaccine or PPE, presumably the company is in that business already. So this seemed like a complete shock when it happened. Do we know where this idea emanated from? Who was pushing for it? Yeah, so, I mean, it really came out of Peter Navarro's office, you know, uh, in trade. Um, and so he brought it to the International Development Finance Corporation, which is a sort of new body that's mostly focused or pretty much exclusively focused on international development loans. But then as part of the Defense Production Act, was granted the ability to do some domestic loans to build up the pharmaceutical supply chain. So, I mean, I think in the Trump administration's defense here, it was always going to be sort of a weird thing because the idea is to get the United States to do something it hasn't done. You know, it's how can we find a company that could perhaps get better at pharmaceutical manufacturing so the U.S. could have a better position. And then you look at Kodak, and it's this company with a great history. It works in chemicals, and so maybe sort of that can pivot. That was that was sort of the idea, but, but certainly there are a lot of questions about whether that's really something that could materialize. What can we tell about insider trading? And by well, that, I mean trading by people that are directors or management of the company. Yeah, so there were disclosures um, around this deal with insiders, some board members buying shares, right? So buying shares when the price was low, and then obviously it skyrocketed when they had this deal. And it seemed like in a period where it was quite possible that they would have known that this might happen. Um, and you know, Kodak hasn't come out and said anything like that they had, you know, a regular share purchase program. So there's certainly questions around, you know, what they knew and whether they should have been buying shares. And then there were also disclosures around uh, grants uh, for some insiders uh, that, that could have, you know, that it seemed like the board was saying, okay, we sort of agreed to these grants, but now we're filing about it. That uh, obviously seem more valuable after uh, the share price explodes because of the snaps. 
It's really a phenomenal story, Paul. I mean, the, yeah. the day that the headlines crossed, you know, that suddenly it was going to become a pharmaceutical <laughs> company, even in part, I know it definitely reminded me of the days when, when companies were becoming so, suddenly cryptocurrency companies and so yeah, on. Yeah, the first thing I did when I saw the news, I went to the FA function the, or the PGEO function. That gives you a kind of breakdown by revenue. And I was like, I didn't even know these guys were in the you know, pharmaceutical business. Turns out they really aren't. Well, exactly. Chemicals and pharmaceuticals are sometimes not the same thing. Our thanks to Eric Newcomer, tech and politics startup reporter here for Bloomberg News. A lot of stuff going on in the real estate space, as you can imagine here. We're having, you know, we had the retail uh, industry, bricks and mortar in secular decline prior to the pandemic. Then the pandemic just accelerated all of those trends and really wreaking havoc throughout the entire uh, kind of space of uh, commercial real estate. Let's get some latest on that. We can do that with Iman Bivanlu. Bivanlu, I'm sorry, Lead Portfolio Manager of High Income Equities and Global REITs for TCW. Iman, thanks so much for joining us here. There's some news that, for example, mall operator Simon Property Group is in talks with Amazon, maybe turn some of their empty store space um, you know, into a fulfillment center. What's going on in the big malls and, and, and trying to deal with the uh, the outbreak of the pandemic and the impact on their business. Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you very much first for having me, uh, Paul and Vani. So, um, you know, it's a very interesting phenomenon, you know, that 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 uh, you're referring to. So, uh, you know, if we just take a step back and, and remember that these malls were built, uh, you know, about 40, 50 years ago, and you know, at the time, you know, shops like Sears and J.C. Penney, they were the premier retailers in the country, right? So the idea was that, you know, you would build them all, you would bring, uh, you know, one of these great retailers, um, and you would generate some kind of network effect. Uh, you would attract other retailers along with put traffic, and, you know, would have this virtuous, uh, you know, virtuous uh, circle or cycle of uh, shopping and, 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 and a great experience. And, you know, as you mentioned, you know, with e-commerce uh, and consumer preferences essentially moving away, you know, from these retailers, we're beginning to see the unwind uh, of that network effect. And so, you know, what I find stunning is, you know, originally the mall's response uh, to, to this, you know, to this loss was to try to convert or transform the space into something more of an experiential, um, uh, uh, you know, um, factor for the, the, the visitors, the traffic. So, they would, for example, they would shift to restaurants or theaters. And, uh, you know, now we're seeing that essentially with COVID, perhaps that equation is changing and perhaps they're throwing in a towel on that idea and, you know, seeking, um, you know, seeking other types of uh, usage, uh, specifically industrial and with Amazon um, coming in. So presumably Amazon will strike serious deals here. I mean, if they know that JCPenney, Sears are not going to be filled with, you know, their own uh, items, then Amazon can sort of use them for probably pennies on the dollar, no? Uh, yes, Bonnie, I think that's, that's a, a very good deduction. You know, I think um, when you think about it from Amazon's vantage, uh, you know, the bottleneck in their operations has been the last mile delivery, right? So they've been seeking, uh, you know, these grade A, you know, excellent locations. And, and let's face it, these malls, you know, many of them are, are, are very well located. They're near population centers. You know, they're close to freeways, uh, very easily accessible. Um, so in some ways, they're kind of perfect, you know, for, for a fulfillment center or distribution center. Now, um, you know, many of the boxes are a little bit smaller than, than your typical um, Amazon box. Or, or, you know, Amazon, I think, likes to have somewhere in the vicinity of, you know, 800,000 to even a million, uh, you know, square feet. Uh, many of these JCPenney or Sears boxes are closer to 150 or 200,000 square feet. 
But still, you know, in, a, in an area that is very supply limited, uh, supply constrained, having access to these locations is really, you know, going to benefit Amazon. And I think that your guess that they're going to get great economics out of these uh, is, is probably a very good one because, you know, what is the alternative from the vantage point of, of Simon and the mall owners? Um, so, yeah, I think it could be very lucrative for them. So, Iman, give us just kind of a 30,000 over, overview of kind of, you know, just commercial real estate, um, you know, whether it's from the REITs perspective. I mean, it just seems like the trends that we saw prior to the pandemic are just on an accelerated mode right now. And it, it, it's hard to paint a bullish call here, is it? No, I think you're right, Paul. You know, it's, uh, it really does depend on the specific sub- subsector within commercial real estate. Um, you know, there are certainly those, those parts of it that have thrived. You know, we were talking about the industrial space. Uh, you know, we should remember that those landlords have done quite well. You know, companies like Prologis, um, you know, that entire ecosystem. Um, additionally, uh, you know, data centers, towers, you know, as, as work from home models have been successful, you know, those companies have thrived. And it has really come at the expense of, you know, those that are more centrally located near the epicenter of the, you know, of the pandemic, uh, you know, things like retail, um, you know, things like hotels, lodging, and so on, that, that have really been, been pressured. And we envision that that pressure is going to continue, by the way. And I think that these, these are parts of, as you mentioned, longer-term secular trends that have been impacting real estate that are not being accelerated because of COVID. Yeah, I mean, what do you do when you invest in these things? I mean, what is the next thing that might replace, you know, these investment dollars for you? You know, it's it's a great question, and we spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about these trends. You know, we find that uh, real estate, like like all other sectors, uh, does evolve. Uh, you know, even though it's perceived to be very stable, you know, that's part of the, the draw of it is you're supposed to have very stable rents and you know and and high visibility. And yet, you know, what you're seeing unfold here is, is precisely the opposite, right? I mean, those, those owners of, or, or shareholders in Simon or, or the retail REITs thought they had visible rents, and then sure enough, now you see the disruption. So we spend a lot of time in, in thinking about the secular trends, you know, that are, that are hitting the market. You know, so two of the easy ones are the ones that we're experiencing right now. You know, e-commerce, we touched on, uh, big data and mobility, you know, that's the work from home, success, you know, things like data centers and towers. But what are the, the secular trends that are perhaps in their nascency uh, right now? Um, you know, we, we spend some time thinking about those. What will the impact of driverless technology be? Um, artificial intelligence is a very large trend that is impacting other segments of the market. You know, what would the impact of that on, on real estate be? And it's oftentimes we find that these are the forces that really shape, you know, the winners and losers of, you know, 10 years from now. And it's only, you know, manifested, you know, in, in, in a couple of years. Well, we're definitely going to follow that story, Iman. Thank you for coming on and uh, giving us your intelligence. Iman Brivanlu, lead PM of High Income Equities and Global REITs. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.